It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 3rd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Several weeks ago, Microsoft lobbed a copy of Vista over my transom, which caused me to think, does anyone still have a transom? I don't, so I guess they really couldn't have literally lobbed it over the transom. That was kind of a figure of speech. Well, anyway, it came along with a copy of Office 2007. I have not yet installed Vista. That is perhaps a chore that will happen this week. Cross your fingers, your toes, and your eyes. I have previously seen some of the 2007 Office components, so when I installed Office 2007, what I saw wasn't exactly a surprise, but then again, it was kind of a surprise, because a lot of things have changed between 2003 and 2007. The menu looked familiar enough. Office Word, Excel, Outlook, Access, PowerPoint, Publisher, and then the Microsoft Office Tools subdirectory. The main difference, it said 2007 instead of 2003. So I wanted to take a, a quick look around and see what was in the various applications without doing much more than opening them. I opened Microsoft Word, found a ribbon in place of the familiar menus that I'd come to expect and tolerate. Same thing happened in Excel. The Outlook screen was almost totally different. When I opened Access, there were options that I had never seen before, but as soon as I opened an Access database, yeah, there was the new ribbon. And in PowerPoint, well, I knew what to expect there. I had seen PowerPoint uh, probably a year and a half ago, and I knew that there would be a ribbon there. Indeed, there was. What is all this ribbon stuff? The ribbon provides functionality that applies to the task you're performing at the time. The technology itself builds on Microsoft's custom menus that I hated in the Office 2003 version. It seemed that whatever I wanted was an option on the menu that did not display until I waited for a couple of seconds. So I always turned that off in Office 2003. The technology's come a long way in 2007. Today's ribbons show you the commands and the functions that are applicable to what you're doing, or at least so it seems at first glance. So what should I look at first? I decided that Microsoft Publisher would be a quick, easy kill. I figured I would hate it. Professionals who deal with publishing in any way, shape, or form consider Microsoft Publisher to be little more than a toy. But this is a toy that's going to amuse some people. I started by looking through the canned options that Microsoft provided, canned options for newsletters and various kinds of publications. Now keep in mind that some languages take more space than English. French, for example, takes about 15% more space than English. Some languages go right to left instead of what English does in going left to right. Some go top to bottom. Well, when Microsoft designs something, they have to keep in mind the length of the language and the direction of the language. And what they do has to work in all cases. That's got to be a nightmare. When I design something, the design is between me and the person I report to. In Microsoft's case, it's between Microsoft and hundreds of languages around the globe. Well, I looked at a Harvest Color newsletter template, the default colors for one of the newsletters. 
looked okay, but I decided I would change the colors, change to a uh, a blue and a light green. I was beginning to be impressed because things seemed to be a lot easier than they had any right to be. After creating a document, I found that I still had some options for page layout, colors, typefaces, and such. Decided I didn't like the choices I made, so I selected some other colors and some other typefaces. Then I plugged in some text, just some random text from TechBiter Worldwide to see what would happen. I was able to create what I consider to be a decent-looking document in less than half an hour. If you'd like to see the document, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and you'll find about a 200K PDF document of what I created. Now, if you are a commercial designer, somebody who creates weekly or monthly newsletters and a magazine, if you do books or you do other large or design-intensive publications, Microsoft Publisher is not what you're going to use. But if you're an office worker who is occasionally called on to create a flyer for the company picnic or some other basic informational piece for internal or external use, this might be just what you need. And this is something that a lot of people do these days. Companies tend to call on their own employees to create documents. Now, I don't agree that that's a good idea. I think that it works out a lot better if you have a designer do the design, if you have a writer do the writing. But I also understand that that doesn't happen in all cases these days. In fact, it's increasingly rare. So as long as a tool does the job for which it was designed, you can't call it a bad tool. For example, you probably wouldn't want to move all your household goods from Yuma to Scranton in a Mini, and you probably wouldn't want to drive a 25-foot moving van from home to the office every day. You'd pick the right vehicle for the job at hand. Same thing with tools like Microsoft Publisher. Professional designers are going to use InDesign, Photoshop, and other professional tools. But for one or two brochures a year, investing the money required to obtain Adobe's professional publishing suite and then investing in the time to learn how to use those applications just wouldn't really make a lot of sense. We'll look at some of the other applications in the suite in later editions of TechBiter Worldwide. It's too big a suite to cover all in one program. But one more thing I can mention this time around, hardware. Microsoft says that Office 2007 will run on a computer with at least a 500 megahertz processor an 800 by 600 monitor, Windows XP with Service Pack 2, and 256 megabytes of RAM. There is a big difference between running and being usable. I wouldn't even consider installing Office 2007 on a machine slower than 1.5 gigahertz. That's about three times the speed of what Microsoft says is acceptable nor would I consider trying to install it on a machine with a monitor smaller than 1024 by 768 and larger is definitely better. And you need at least one gigabyte of RAM. If you're running Windows Vista, make that two gigabytes of RAM minimum. Office 2007 is supported only on Windows Server 2003, Windows XP, and Windows Vista. You'll notice I left out Windows 98, Windows ME, and even Windows 2000. The applications may well run on some of those earlier operating systems. I haven't tested that. But they are not supported by Microsoft if you choose to try to run them there. Switching from Microsoft to Apple. As you know, I was in New York a week or so ago. 
And I made a point of stopping by the new Apple store, which I believe occupies space formerly occupied by FAO Schwartz. That's the famous toy store. They're still there, just no longer in the storefront space at 59th and 5th Avenue. They're behind. Instead, there is a large glass structure that extends about two stories upward, contains no commercial space. All of the Apple store is subterranean. You go down there, well, first of all, getting down there is kind of a wow all by itself because they have glass stairs and a glass elevator inside the glass stairs. The stairs are spiral, and the elevator is round. It's at the center of the staircase. The glass is frosted, not completely transparent. It's an interesting entrance. A lot of wow once you get down there. First thing I noticed, graphics on a lot of the walls. Not so much the graphics themselves, you'd expect that in an Apple store, but the quality of the graphics. You're able to walk up to them and look at them pretty darn closely. And the resolution is so high on the graphics that even when expected close up, no pixels are visible. Counters hold dozens and dozens of Mac computers in every possible configuration, all available for people to walk up to and use. External hard drives are their iPods and accessories. One side of the store is a big genius bar. I was there on a Sunday afternoon. The bar was full. Now, you don't drink at this bar. You walk up and you talk to Apple geniuses. Uh, the bar was full. People were standing in line waiting to ask questions and have their problems solved. That's not necessarily a good thing, is it? Dozens of Apple employees were available to answer questions, but not one of them approached me with, the question while I was there. The question, well, you walk into most computer stores or most any store these days, simply stepping onto the sales floor makes you an immediate target for, may I help you? The appropriate reply to that is, no thanks, just looking. I was happy not to have to say that time after time after time. I didn't have to say it once. I knew, though, that I could attract an Apple employee within about 15 milliseconds if I needed one. I don't know whether that's Apple's policy the New York Apple Store's policy, or maybe the employees are just lazy. I suspect that it's either Apple's policy or the store policy, because plenty of Apple employees were working with customers. Whatever the cause, I appreciated the result, because I really was just looking and taking pictures. You'll see a picture of the one part of the store on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The big Apple Apple Store has an entire section with probably a dozen or so computers for children to play with. The desks are the right height for children. Larger children, like me, can stand at those taller counters and use computers to check their email, as younger daughter Katie did, checking her Gmail account, her home account, her business account, her other home account, her Columbus College of Art and Design account, her third home account, and her MySpace account. The Apple Store in New York is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, so if you happen to wake up at 3 a.m. with an overwhelming urge to buy an iPod, or even a computer, you won't be disappointed. The Columbus Apple Store at Easton is certainly nice enough, but the New York City Apple Store is well worth visiting if you happen to be in the city. It's an easy walk from the number one subway line. If you're on the 2 or 3, change to the local at 72nd if you're going downtown, at 42nd if you're going uptown. It's relatively close to the A, B, C, and D trains, about five minutes or less from a C and E station, and about five minutes from an N, R, Q, W station. Crosstown buses run on 59th Street, connect to uptown buses on 6th, and downtown lines on 5th. So, in other words, there's really no reason to miss it. Totally non-tech, but a budget item. If you are traveling to New York City, there is no reason to spend $300, $400, $500 a night on a hotel room. I've mentioned before that I'd like to stay in Harlem. And it's not just the cost. It's the size of the room, large, and it's 
the amount of ambient noise, not very much. Also, in some places, you get a cat. For $150 per night or less, you can book a Harlem bed and breakfast. I've stated three of them. Each has its own ambience. One offers a two-room suite with a private bath and a kitchen, a two-room suite without a kitchen, and a single room with its own bath. The other two provide shared bath facilities in large rooms on the second and third floors. Now, Midwesterners are going to think of that as the third and fourth floors. One comes complete with cats that will come in and sleep on your bed if you leave the door open at night, which I do. The breakfast part may range from non-existent to coffee and a muffin at the corner bakery to a bagel and fresh fruit in your room. If you insist on having fresh towels every day, maid service, an exercise facility, a bellman to open the door of your car, and 24-hour midtown noise, Harlem is the wrong place for you. But if you want a good, comfortable room, trees in the backyard, quiet nights, and the occasional cat, check out the Harlem bed and breakfasts. While in New York City, I could, of course, eat at Wendy's, Subway, White Castle, Dave & Buster's, TGI Friday's, or any of dozens of other chain restaurants, but who wants to do that? You can find excellent meals at reasonable prices without having to eat the same old stuff you find at home. Take the Stage Deli on 7th Avenue in the mid-50s, for example. The place has been around for decades. The prices seem astoundingly high, 15 bucks for a turkey sandwich. Until you look at the size of the portions, a single turkey sandwich will easily feed at least two people, and a single $10 piece of cheesecake will serve at least three. And then there's a place like PD Steak 2, a fish, shrimp, and steak place, on 125th Street near Lenox Avenue, yes, that's Harlem, serves two large pieces of fish, a baked potato about the size of a softball, enough coleslaw for at least two people, and a roll for about 10 bucks. Maybe Bill Clinton eats there. He's got an office on 125th, but I never did see him walking around. New York is an expensive city, no question, but you can use the subway to get nearly anywhere, and if the subway doesn't take you there, an MTA bus will. For 24 bucks a week per person, you have unlimited access to subways and buses, excluding Metro North and the Long Island Railroad, and other systems that serve out-of-town commuters. You can, of course, take a taxi or limo, and for $45 or $50 or $60 or $100, you can get from the airport to your hotel. Who wants to do that? Back to technology. Was this the week in which we made enormous strides in the fight against spam, Or was it just another false start in our feeble attempts to stop the slop? Only time will tell. But the reputed biggest spammer in the world was arrested and charged. Well, little hyperbole there. Robert Allen Soloway will be tried and probably convicted on numerous fraud charges, but he's not exactly the biggest spammer in the world. He'll probably lose a lot of his toys, including what one pundit described as an expensive Mercedes car, which caused me to wonder if there is such a thing as an inexpensive Mercedes car. If so, perhaps I could buy one. Maybe the spam will slack off for a while, but as long as people are stupid enough to fall for the fakery, there's about as much chance of that as there is for drug runners to stop smuggling drugs. News organizations predicted a big drop in spam. Did you notice any? Yeah, neither did I. Soloway, who's 27, started spamming when he was in school and was once on a top ten list of spammers, according to the Spam House Project. But notice the past tense. Today's biggest spammers are in Russia, protected by Vladimir Putin. Soloway was arrested Wednesday. He was charged with mail fraud, wire fraud, email fraud, aggravated identity theft, and money laundering. That's good. He's facing decades in prison. 
That's better. But it's not like dipping a bucket full of water out of the Atlantic Ocean is going to drop sea level noticeably. Sottleway sent spam using zombied computers. Yours might have been one on his network because most are home computers whose owners have no idea that their machines have been infected. Instead of selling fake Viagra or pushing penny stocks, Soloway aimed to sell tools and services for others to send their own spam. So, bye-bye, Robert Soloway. Good riddance. But don't expect anything to improve anytime soon. There's another spammer I wish somebody would get. He apparently lives in State Line, Nevada. Many of the spams I received on June 1st came from his shop. For example, he was offering me a JCPenney gift card. All I had to do was go to his website and fill out some forms and probably sign up for several things. I've seen this guy before. Another email a few minutes later offered me an iPod Nano. A few minutes later, another JCPenney gift card. A little bit after that, a $1,000 card from Kohl's. Wow, I'm really excited now. Whether this is the same guy or a different person, it is someone from State Line, Nevada, offering me an entertaining trip to see the Oprah Winfrey Show live, including airfare and my hotel stay. How exciting. All of those spams were in the spam bucket at my anti-spam filter website, so I didn't have to look at them. I just do every now and then, just to remind myself how good it is not to have to see these things on a daily basis. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were on the same stage for the first time in eons this week. All right, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Some predictions before the event suggested bombastic comments, but that didn't happen. The big story is not that the meeting was peaceful, but why some pundits would have thought it to be otherwise. It's true that Jobs and Gates are competitors, but it's also true that they are both shrewd business owners. It is true that they have worked well together previously when it was to their advantage to do so. Steve Jobs commented on Bill Gates. Bill built the first software company in the industry, and I think he built the first software company before anybody in our industry knew what a software company was except for these guys. And that was huge. It was really huge. I think the biggest thing was Bill was really focused on software before almost anybody else had a clue that it was really the software. Jobs on Gates. Turning the tables, Bill Gates on Steve Jobs. What Steve's done is quite phenomenal. And if you look back to 1977, that Apple II computer, the idea that it would be a mass market machine, the bet that was made there by Apple, there were other people with products, but the idea that this could be an incredible, empowering phenomenon, Apple pursued that dream. Were there some tweaks, jabs, and jibes? <laughs> of course. These are both guys with large egos, but both have played large parts in the computer industry that's grown up over the past 25 years and how it affects our office lives and our home lives. If you weren't there, and I wasn't either, You'll find videos and transcripts online. I encourage you to take a look. There is a transcript link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if that should someday disappear, I have a PDF of the transcript on the website. It's a worthwhile read. It's fairly long, 20-some pages, but it is worth reading. Take a look at it. 
And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 3rd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.